With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Hello out there. My name is Sam Maxwell, and welcome to the Bedford & Sullivan Podcast, the podcast that keeps you, the audience, active listeners in the research process of the Brooklyn Dodgers TV series I am developing. And uh, before we get into old-time baseball, Brooklyn Dodgers, we're going to get into a little bit modern baseball at the beginning and uh, bringing on the Branch Rickey biography, Lee Lowenfish. And though he has written Branch Rickey, uh, about Branch Rickey, he is obviously very into baseball in general. Lee, thank you very much for being on again. Always good to have you. It's it's a pleasure to be back with you, Sam. You know, at the end of September uh, – and we have an extra game today with the Rays and yep. the Rangers, and uh, exactly. the, yeah, and and I'm I'm following the Rays closely because the manager Joe Madden was a big fan of Branch Rickey. Uh, he grew up in Eastern Pennsylvania, and uh, that organization uh, has developed the farm system that 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 Rickey would be proud of. So. Uh, you know, the great thing about our love of baseball from the Brooklyn Dodgers to today is that past and present combine in, in, in a way that a lot of things in America don't, and, and that's one of my loves for the game. Yeah, it's a great point that you make. Uh, even looking at other sports, even uh, I think basketball is really the only thing that, that comes to, uh, that, that can compare when it comes to the ghosts constantly haunting basketball has uh, gotten because of just uh, the the latter part of the the 20th century basketball is really the only thing that can really uh, compete but with baseball i mean we really keeler is following these guys constantly even if they don't know that name necessarily a lot of the players you know that's the kind of history that baseball has in this country i know and if you look at dustin pedroia of the of the red sox who Who's only five nine? I mean, and Sam Fold, who is is not the uh, great player that Pedroia is for the Rays, but he's another little guy who can run and play some defense. Although he almost made a crippling error for the Rays this weekend. See, that's what's so great about this game. It can change on a dime, but it rewards you if you follow the whole season as well. Well, being very into the Rays right now, what is your opinion of this new wild card game? I, I mean, we, you know, we almost had a, a, a chance for a three-way tie when it comes to two spots of uh, in, in terms of the wild card. So, what is your opinion of this new wave of baseball? I give it mixed reviews. I mean, if I had the magic wand, and Sam, as you get older and more influential, maybe you can help develop this magic wand for me and for the good of baseball. I would shorten the season to 154 games, maybe even 150. I'm not sure I like uh, the idea that a team plays 162 games now, and then in one game it can all they all go home. But uh, but but it, there, it, there's no doubt there's drama to it. But I I really think the season stretches much too long, 
and and people are talking about maybe adding day night double headers and and increasing rosters for those double headers, which indeed has happened. You know, I mean, we're almost right. like a golden age now with the players and the uh, owners uh, trying to 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 do what's good for the game and not just what's good for your individual team. So. Uh, uh, so I think the, uh, the wild card is exciting. There's no doubt about it. But the season goes much too long, and I I would really hope that would be one of my first moves would be to to make the schedule 154 games at the most. Well, I, I have two things to counter with that because you you mentioned something about um, uh, the owners and the players. Uh, it, 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 you're, you're absolutely right. Even though they're obviously making more money than they've ever made, there's an understanding that they have to work together. And, and it's something that they, they didn't see at the beginning of baseball. They, they didn't get it. They just saw it as cattle. They just saw the players as cattle. Um, but in terms of, number one, you already see, uh, the, I think on the double headers now, you can have one extra roster spot for free, basically. You don't have to send anybody down, just add a 26th man. So it, it, what you're talking about is starting to uh, come to fruition. And, um, but in terms of the shorter, the shorter schedule, I agree with you on that, but I don't think it's going to happen for money purposes. And, and though the players and the owners are working together better than they've ever worked at the same time, you cancel eight games uh, you, you know, if, if somebody's finishing at home or if somebody's, you know, obviously if you cancel eight games, I'm sure they're going to split it up where four game, basically you lose four games at the box office. I don't think owners are going to, are going to go for that. Well, I don't think TV is going to go for it because I, right. you know, I, I, I am, I am intrigued that, uh, at the, the numbers I see in the newspapers of the crowds at the end of the season, that uh, even in, t- in towns that have had pretty bad seasons, uh, there seems to be a lot of c- good crowds the last weekend because it's now Fan Appreciation Week, and uh, they're mm-hmm. giving away a lot of things. And I think the Orioles that had a plus year, uh, but certainly not the year that they had last year, so they're going home uh, right now. But they had their players mingling with the fans, you know, uh, serving drinks, greeting them at the door, and I think most teams did have that. So uh, that's another reason for why the schedule will probably stay the way it is. But I, I do think in terms of weather and just the the uh, the length of the season, it, it, you know, you're going to have – you already had some awful weather for the best and most important games of the year, and you can't change the calendar, you know, the, as much as you would like. I mean, bad weather is going to happen at the end of October right. into November, so – uh, you know, the interesting thing to segue back to Branch Rickey is that, you know, at the end of his life, he was pushing for a third league, the Continental League, which was probably, if if the time had been right, would have been the better uh, uh, solution to what we have now. Uh, that would have been a third eight-team league uh, uh, that, w- that had cities, all of which, with the exception of Buffalo, are now in the major leagues. But he was too old to pull it off, and there was too much uh, opposition from the established leagues, um, and, and that's why it didn't happen. But uh, 
to uh, to segue back to him, he was such an innovator and yet such a essentially conservative man. He piqued my uh, interest, and that's why I wrote what turned out to be a big book about a big man. Yeah, exactly, and it would be very, very interesting to to uh, see what Branch Rickey thinks about about current baseball, and I'm sure he'd be pleased, and I'm sure he wouldn't be pleased. I'm sure he'd have a, a lot of different things to to, uh, to um, try to counter <laughs> whatever's going on. Uh, but so yeah, let's segue back. No matter how how much it, I'm very excited about playoff baseball right now, my team's not in there, and I can only. Uh, kind of live the glory of the olden times and in, in attempting to to make this into a television show. So, with uh, with Branch Rickey and his transition from St. Louis, for for all of those who out there who know Branch Rickey as uh, uh, you know the man who brought Jackie Robinson to baseball through the Brooklyn Dodgers, do know that Branch Rickey innovated a lot of stuff before that. And before he was in Brooklyn, he was in St. Louis. Now, obviously, you know a lot about that. So tell me about the transition from St. Louis to Brooklyn for uh, Branch Rickey. And um, when when did his name really start coming up in discussion for taking over for Larry McPhail, who ended up dropping out to join the Army again? Well, uh, Sam, he actually uh, almost came to Brooklyn a few years earlier because the Dodgers, as you well know, were in bankruptcy. Uh, Their bank, uh, uh, the Brooklyn Trust Bank, kept it afloat, and the Dodgers had uh, all those warring uh, heirs of the late Charles Everts and the late uh, McKeever who uh, owned part of the team. And so Branch almost came in the mid-30s, but at that time he was on good terms with his owner, Sam Braden, who, by the way, was also from New York, uh, was from Greenwich Village, the poor part of Greenwich Village. <laughs> Braden wouldn't let him come, but by the, by 1942, Ricky knew that he was going to have to leave the Cardinals because Braden was retired, was wealthy, and he didn't want to pay Branch Ricky what he was paying him because Ricky was the highest paid person in baseball when you added the salary he got and the bonus he got for every deal he made of the minor and the major league players. Yeah, that exactly. It's uh, it's pretty pretty crazy that he he certainly was an innovator when it came to uh, the business side of baseball. Um, even though, you know, when it comes to his relationship with Walter O'Malley, Walter O'Malley was even more on that side of the business of baseball. Um, so when when Tell, can, can you paint me a picture as much as possible, as many details as we know, uh, as, as to the phone call that was made to ask Branch Rickey to come to Brooklyn? Well, it's uh, it was at least two years in the making. Uh, the uh, because he knew from 1940 on that he was not coming back to St. Louis when his contract uh, ran out. And uh, the Cardinals uh, hadn't won a pennant since the Gas House Gang and in the World Series in 1934, but they were developing the great farm system that by 1942, which turned out to be Ricky's last year in St. Louis, not only beat the Dodgers, uh, 
in a in a pennant race that the great Tommy Holmes sports writer said was almost a, a pennant race that went on uh, from June because these two teams would wind up winning over a hundred games each, mm-hmm. and they not only beat the, the Dodgers but they beat the uh, Yankees in the World Series the last four games in a row a five game World Series, so. Um, McLaughlin uh, and the owners of the Dodgers were getting a little fed up with with McPhail's uh, uh, spending habits. And uh, and as as you probably know, Sam, the the last uh, uh, straw was when he paid $100,000 for a player who did not turn out to be much. And, And McPhail went into the Army again like he had done in the first uh, World War, but uh, he probably, if the if the war hadn't occurred, he probably would have been out. So they saw in Ricky a man who could build a great farm system and would, would not spend as much money because, you know, Ricky was frugal. Uh, uh, Jimmy Powers in the Daily News would pretty soon after Ricky comes to Brooklyn call him El Cheapo, and that became... <laughs> In the in the minds of so many people, uh, the players and fans, a um, uh, the, the thing that stuck in in your mind about Ricky, but but uh, to the owners of the Dodgers and to many of the players, he was an inspirational leader and he certainly knew talent. So uh, to answer your question, the phone call was was. Uh, uh, Starting uh, or certainly no later than 1942, and they were beginning to think about it in in the, in in, ni- in 1941 as well. Okay, uh, that 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 is that is um, very interesting when it when it it comes to the transition. And um, I'm thinking about the war years when I hear that, and I hear about the farm system, and it, it jumps to me that. Brent Tricky was the perfect person to start rebuilding, if you will. Even though Larry McPhail did a lot of work, all those players were were in the war at the time. The majority of the players. And you know what's fascinating? You know, uh, McPhail and and Ricky were uh, uh, at one time on the same side. I mean, he, you know, Ricky brought McPhail into baseball. To, man, to to be the general manager and the president of the Columbus team in uh, Ohio during the Depression. And McPhail was a born promoter. In some ways, he was Bill Veck before Bill Veck because he didn't bring a midget, but he, he spruced up the ballpark. He had fashion shows uh, before games, and he did that wherever he went. Uh, hired Babe Ruth as a coach for Brooklyn, uh, dressed up the ushers, uh, but when he and and he became uh, and and Ricky recommended him to Brooklyn uh, after he took a leave of absence from Cincinnati because he was an alcoholic and uh, and and he when when he was in an alcoholic uh, frenzy you didn't want to be around him and and uh, so it, it, it's it's almost an operatic relationship between Ricky and McPhail and the other man, you know, Leo DeRocher, who I was so pleased to see had an important role in the movie 42 because, you know, Leo DeRocher, uh, Ricky had so many problems with DeRocher. 
uh, said yeah. about him, he had the infinite capacity to take a bad situation and make it worse. And uh, but he but he was a great manager, and Ricky knew that, you know. So uh, <laughs> that triangle between Ricky and McPhail and DeRocher is is almost. Uh, Op- operatic and and it, it's so much to the story of how Ricky replaced McPhail in Brooklyn and was not as popular a person because McPhail you know I mean fans as long as the team won the fans loved an owner who punched people right but you know yeah Ricky, right you know but Branch Ricky was you know pontificated you know he's a you know one of the great lines I ever read in my research was a Brooklyn fan heard him speak and said he's a man of many faucets all running at once and uh, <laughs> so uh, he did but but in the popular mind he could be easily uh, branded as El Chipo but without him of course you not only don't have the great Brooklyn farm system that developed people from all over the country starting as teenagers you know uh, Hodges and Rex Barney and uh, Duke Snyder, but of course you have the breaking of the color line that, that, that Ricky knew could only happen in Brooklyn, or certainly knew it could not happen in St. Louis. Right, and, and what's interesting about that, and just a brief tangent, is that you hear Kurt Flood talking about what he had to deal with, and um, you hear him talking about how uh, Bush, I forget his first name, but the owner, Bush, Jesse. Uh, in the early 60s, had no idea that Cliff, that Kurt Flood wasn't staying in the hotels, and this is this is the 60s, so right. you know. And to the credit of Bush and and Bill White, who was one of the team leaders of the Cardinals, they you know they did uh, they did uh, uh, buy a hotel in St. Petersburg where the Cardinals could all stay, and that that proved an incredible asset to those teams that won the World Series in 64 and 67, you know. So, yeah. uh, you know, you know it, 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 these are great themes, uh, uh, and and, it, and I'm, I'm, glad, I'm glad you're aware of them, and I'm, I hope, you know, I can elucidate some of the, you know, the finer points without losing the big thread, which was that, you know, without Ricky and Robinson, this, this would have been delayed a long time. Right. Uh, yeah, and you you think about the the timeline of racial uh, of of what happened in the fifties in terms of um, uh, how am I Little Rock? Uh, I, I I was I, I blanked on the school uh, for a second, but you think about Little Rock, you think about everything that happened with the, the march in Washington, uh, the the southern the fire hoses in the sixties. I mean, this this was still you know. A, Everything that happened in terms of actual policy really only you know happened like fifteen to twenty years after Jackie Robinson came to baseball, which is one of the reasons why I believe Jackie Robinson Day on April fifteenth, which is now tax day, and I think you'd probably have to adjust tax day to have a national holiday um, you know, and I'd be fine obviously paying taxes two days later on April seventeenth yeah. to celebrate Jackie Robinson outside of baseball which is what I think should happen. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, Martin Luther King always told Ricky Robinson, Roy Campanella, Newcomb, that his job was made easier. His very tough job, obviously, was made easier because there was the example. 
there's the example right. that black and white could play together for the in a common cause and um, so uh uh that that's why it's always good to uh to to rehash these stories now speaking of which though you mentioned in the book how some black leaders viewed Branch Rickey kind of not along the lines of, of as a prophet, as 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 somebody who led them to the promised land, but more so as somebody who took advantage of the situation, of the opportunity. Can you get into that a little bit? Expand on that idea. Well, the, the, in in the aftermath, you know, in in the Black Power movement of the 1960s and and later. I mean, Ricky was seen, you know, by some of them as as just, you know, a man who uh, was in this for the money. And you know, the uh, the line was Jackie's nimble, Jackie's quick, Jackie makes the terrorist trials, you know, uh, click. Right. But you know, at at the time, you know, Branch Branch Ricky had tremendous support from 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 the black middle class because they did see it as an important breakthrough. And, uh, you know, one of the important stories is about when Ricky, right before Jackie Robinson started spring training for Montreal, but with the hope of making the Dodgers in 1947, Ricky gathered 30 middle-class uh, black ministers, lawyers, doctors, and basically read them a riot act at the Carlton Y in Brooklyn, in downtown Brooklyn, uh, saying that the, the biggest problem that Robinson will face is too much adulation from the, the black people. And it'll give him a spelled head. And, of course, Ricky was always thinking of what the reaction would be of the white players because he was sensitive. Some people might say excessively sensitive, but it was who Ricky was coming from a very... Uh, white supremacist part of Southern Ohio that still had an anti-slavery history, and so Ricky was very afraid that the white players would would resent a black player with a swelled head, and and the ministers at first were shocked, but then they understood what you know Ricky was saying, and they put up these signs: "Don't spoil Jackie's chances," and. Um, they kept the uh, uh, and checked some of the the rowdy uh, and, and maybe too racially proud behavior at the ballparks. Now, years later, decades later, a whole generation of historians and activists have poo-pooed Ricky for the way he behaved like this. But at the time, he had support. Uh, of the black middle class for what he for what he did and 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 given what he was uh, a uh, an innovative but conservative uh, uh, individual uh, I think he handled things to uh, quite well. I agree, and he didn't you know the for one thing one of the things I loved about number uh, the the movie forty two was the fact that they didn't hide that idea of Branch Rickey. One of the things he, he, you know, in that first scene, that first crucial scene, he says, you know, money's all green. <laughs> Money has one color, it's green. And, and you know, even if, even if that's, that was a big reason why, at the same time, everybody else in baseball loved money. 
You know, who doesn't, who, who really, let's be honest here, who doesn't love money? It, it, unfortunately, the way the world works, we need money. You need money to function as a regular human being. And, and I, I, I find it endearing that he didn't hide behind that. And, and even though he understood the money-making potential of bringing a black player into the major leagues at the same time, it, it, you know, other, other owners didn't do it because of their racism. Yeah, and, and they were afraid of the reaction of, of, of the white players, you know, and that's where, you know, Ricky uh, 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 was uh, believed in, in confronting uh, a problem head on. And he also believed in, in challenging the, you know, the reasoning capabilities of, of people, including a lot of ball players who didn't come from particularly educated backgrounds. I mean, Rick, Ricky in his office had this sign that uh, that I found out in my research came from a evangelist and a geologist of the late 19th century, Henry Drummond, uh, a Scotsman. And it said, he who will not reason is a bigot. He who cannot reason is a fool. He who dares not, uh, is a, uh, dares not reason is a slave. And and in uh, in in a lot of ways, he confronted players and colleagues who said this would blow up and there'd be you know race riots and everything. And uh, I, uh, that's uh, where I thought the movie was was good for a popular movie. I mean, I thought Harrison Ford really embodied that angry and yet uh, moral side of Ricky and. And Chadwick Boseman portrayed Robinson as as equally angry and and uh, uh, not uh, inclined to take crap from you know from bigots you know so right. you know I I so I that that's why I thought I thought the the film worked well although it's only as good a film as the kind of discussion one has afterwards, you know, because the, there's a lot left out of the movie and, um, uh, and, and it's almost... Well, you, you only have two hours. You only have two yeah. hours to present the the one year that they're trying. And I, I appreciated that they decided to stick to that timeline because, right. you know, we're, we're like looking at what I'm trying to do, basically the entire third season is going to be about Jackie Robinson. It's going to be about, uh, you know, introducing the, the integration um, in terms of the timeline that I'm trying to present. And that'll explore a lot more than they were able to in two hours. But I liked that they didn't try to just do a, bio, a biopic about his entire baseball career. They focused on the most important thing in telling the story at the beginning, in in in, in presenting it finally to, because that's what, that's one of the things. Like I have certain filmmaking uh, uh, pet peeves regarding it, but that didn't take away from my enjoyment of the movie, and it didn't take away from how much I believe uh, the movie to be a very important. Uh, because for, for one thing, had they screwed it up, I wouldn't find it to be as important. But at the same time, like because of of how important of a subject it is, it is a classic. Yeah, well, it certainly is a story 
that people, some of the Jewish historians and myself included, to say it's it's like the Passover story, you know, that that needs to be told over and over again. You know, the sad thing is that there's so much ignorance and amnesia in the country that a lot of young people seeing that film didn't realize what segregation was like, you know. Right. Uh, and and the film doesn't spare any uh doesn't spare the audience i mean it, the, the opening scenes are riveting you know about what what it was like traveling in the south and how Robert, how Robinson was not inclined you know to uh to take guff and uh, you know taking that uh, gas pump out of the station if they can't use the bathroom is really one of the memorable early scenes in the, in that film yeah, it is, uh, and um, you know, as a Mets fan, especially, I loved the 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 Ed Charles angle. Uh, yeah. That that was really really awesome to me that the filmmakers included that, and it and it made it more endearing to me. You know, because I have so many little details that I I I you know give it crap for, if you will, when it when it comes to actually editing and putting the movie together, and I find certain. Hollywood quirks that in the modern day I, I feel as if they don't trust the audience to to get certain things and they they try to push them forward emotionally. But that that that's all, you know. I, I'm not, I don't let that sour how much I appreciated the presentation of the whole thing. Right. But I don't want to I don't want to get too much into the the critique of that. I I want to uh, you know because we don't have too much time left. But I want to get into the the Walter O'Malley angle of Branch Rickey's career in 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 uh, Brooklyn, and so Walter O'Malley, I believe he, you know, I, I'm obviously I'm early on in my timeline, so I'm still kind of at the late 30s, but I know that Branch Rickey, uh, I'm sorry, Walter O'Malley um, came aboard in terms of uh, in terms of owner, or ownership or a piece of the 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 pie in 1942. So Branch Rickey comes along. Right after that, talk about how the relationship formed. Uh, how how did it eventually evolve to the point that Branch Rickey ended up leaving? Well, O'Malley was the lawyer uh, for the Brooklyn Trust Bank, and he was very close to McLaughlin, who ran the bank and had been a one of those important men behind the scenes in New York City. He had been a former um, police commissioner, McLaughlin, and it was known as uh, uh, James V. McLaughlin, sometimes George V. McLaughlin, sometimes known as George V. And uh, O'Malley, from the early on, saw that the, the, uh, 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 the Dodgers could be a very profitable uh, 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 profitable operation. And he he signed off on the uh, the scouting secretly of black players, uh, the and he had designs early on on running the team. I mean, he was a he had studied architecture, you know, graduated University of Pennsylvania. His father had been a big commissioner of markets in New York, so he was a big big city mover and shaker. Uh, and and he saw the Dodgers as a very profitable uh, enterprise. Ricky saw it as profitable, but 
still basically a baseball system, uh, system and organization with with hundreds of players in the in the minor leagues, and uh, and and they were bound bound to clash, and the the existence of John Lawrence Smith, who was the head of the Pfizer chemical company, kept the O'Malley and Ricky uh, coming conf- confrontation uh, under control. Uh, Smith uh, liked Ricky. The only thing he didn't like about Ricky was that he, you know, Ricky got involved in, in supporting Brooklyn Dodger football that cost uh, a lot of money uh, to, to the organization. But, but he supported the integration. He supported the farm system. But he also had cancer. And, and he was dying uh, in the late 1940s. And when he died during the All-Star break in 1950, that was the beginning of the end. That was the, actually the end game for Ricky. Because Ricky wanted his contract extended from you know the first success of the Robinson team from 47 on. But uh, the rest of the board wouldn't do it. O'Malley was getting more power on the board, and he had gotten the power of attorney from John L. Smith's widow, and that uh, this, that was the last straw. And and Ricky was forced out, and he went to Pittsburgh, and it was uh, it was quite a uh, executive power play in the last uh, uh, months of 1950. Uh, Ricky. Uh, the deal was that the, the three partners, O'Malley, Ricky, and John L. Smith, each had a third of the team. Smith offered loans uh, to O'Malley so he could uh, legally have his third. Ricky took out a lot of insurance uh, loans to, to take care of his third. The deal was that when one of the three wanted to get out, they had to offer his share to the other. So when O'Malley tells Ricky, you know, you're not going to be president anymore, he offers Ricky only what he paid him, paid for it in the, in 1945, which was $333,000. By then, the team, the, the most profitable team in the National League, if not in baseball, was worth so much more. And so Ricky got Zeckendorf, the builder, to buy, uh, to offer a million dollars for his share. And, and I think uh, about Zeckendorf. I think about Zeckendorf every time I see the MetLife building, which exactly, used to be the Pan Am. Exactly, and so that was O'Malley's tactical error, and uh, Ricky uh, and O'Malley didn't th- thought it was a uh, a bluff, but he he paid that price to buy out Ricky, and Zeckendorf had a had a finder's fee written in, uh, or a uh, not a finder's fee, but a tying up of capital fee uh, um, put into the deal with Ricky so that if his capital had been tied up and he didn't get the team, he had to be paid 50000 And that 50000 went to Ricky when Ricky went to Galbraith uh, in Pittsburgh. Because Galbraith, when you know you think of the, the Met Life, Galbraith built the Sacconi Tower on 42nd Street. So these were high rollers that you know Ricky was involved with, and when he knew he couldn't come back to Brooklyn, uh, he had the Pittsburgh deal to fall into, and 
Um, and that was the, the beginning of the last 15 years of Ricky's life that weren't as successful as his years in St. Louis and Brooklyn. But I gave it uh, equal treatment in my biography because, uh, you know, Ricky was somebody who never liked to lose and knew how to build organizations. And he succeeded in Pittsburgh, though he wasn't around to enjoy it because he was already trying to start the Continental League when the uh, when the Pirates won the World Series in 1960. So to close on, you know, how Ricky would uh, see baseball today, one, he'd be very happy that the Pirates are back in the playoffs, conceivably for only one game on Tuesday, this tomorrow. <laughs> but And he also would be thrilled that baseball is international now. There, there's so many players from all over the, uh, uh, the world. Uh, as for the salaries of the players and the focus on – baseball as entertainment and not baseball i don't think he'd be too thrilled but uh he believed in life he believed in baseball and uh uh one of the reasons i'm glad i wrote baseball's ferocious gentleman was to to bring that kind of passion and intelligence and fun back back to life unfortunately uh, i still have so many more questions and <laughs> we don't have as much time left but when it comes to um i'm 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 hearing about the the end of the 50s uh, and, and and in terms of the board of directors right now as i write the beginning of the series i'm actually focused a lot on the mckeevers and, and there's certain elements that i'm taking uh because there's so little information about the mckeevers uh, there, there's an angle I'm taking with, like, you know, playing uh, uh, just just pop culture and, and television and stuff like that through the McKeevers because I, I'm able to to write. Uh, I may I, I don't have as many uh, solidified facts as as so many other people uh, when it comes to the Brooklyn Dodgers, like Larry McPhail and Branch Rickey. So with the McKeevers at the end of the fifties, um, they still had like 25% of, uh, they, they, I think they owned 25% of the Dodgers till 1975. So they, well, no, they no, traveled that's not, to. No, that's not right. You see, the important okay. thing is that in 45, when that triumvirate of Rickey and Smith and O'Malley were created, all the heirs of the McKeevers, uh, with one exception, and the Abbott's heirs, they were all bought out. There was Mulvey, who married right. Deary. Uh, Mulvey still had a quarter of the team, and he had married Deary McKeever, and that was the last one. Uh, and then he kept that quarter uh, in L.A. for a while. I mean, you know, Mulvey is a very important shadowy figure. I mean, he became uh, Bobby uh, Valentine's uh, father-in-law. And, Which is interesting because because Ralph uh, Ralph Branca married. Well, I mean, I meant, I'm sorry. I meant. I'm sorry. I meant. I meant Ralph Branca's father-in-law. No, yeah. no. But I believe. I believe Bobby Valentine. I, I think he's connected to it in terms of the heirs. I think. I think right. that eventually he married right. somebody. Well, uh, we'll, we'll have a uh, we'll have a, a reprise on this, and uh, I'm glad I was able to help you today. Oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, well, uh, again, you know, we have close to about seven minutes left, um, so let's end with Branch Rickey 
and his, his, you know, getting out of the hospital bed when he, uh, I, I, you know, in the early 60s, and getting to the hospital bed and going to the Missouri Sports Hall of Fame to to give his last public appearance speech. Yeah, he he had, last year in St. Louis, he had been part of the '64 uh, Cardinal front office, but. He was asked to uh, resign uh, at the end of the year, which turned out to be a World Series winning year for the Cardinals, the, the year that the Phillies collapsed. And so at the end of his life, because he, he could not be idle, he was raising money for his alma mater, Ohio Wesleyan, because, you know, uh, I mentioned St. Louis. When we talk about Ricky, we should always talk about the Ohio-Missouri access before he came to New York because he was this poor farm boy from Southern Ohio who went to Ohio Wesleyan as a conditional student because he had not even graduated from a certified high school in in Ohio. Uh, and so he's uh, he's back. He's raising money for his alma mater, but living again in St. Louis, where he raised his six kids and his wife had taken up painting as a hobby. But he gets ill. He's got all kinds of, of uh, ailments. He's had the Meniere's disease since the year he signed Robinson to his first contract. He, he's had uh, heart attacks while he was in Pittsburgh. And he's got 106 fever, and they uh, let him go out uh, to uh, attend the University of Missouri football game against Oklahoma. And that night, November 14, 1965, he's going to give a speech after he's inducted into the Missouri Sports Hall of Fame. George Sisler, his great player, uh, who he converted from pitcher to first base at the University of Michigan and then managed him in St. Louis with the Browns. Sisler's getting inducted that night. So is uh, J.G. Taylor Spink, the publisher of the Sporting News. And, and Ricky starts talking about courage. And that's his topic, courage, physical and spiritual. And uh, the thing about him, he's Wesley Branch Ricky, Sam. I mean, he's a very religious man. I mean, he's also a very cunning baseball executive. But he he had there were many features to this man, the many faucets running all at once. So he starts talking about a great uh, play that Jim Bottingley, his first Hall of Famer, made in St. Louis when he slid into second, avoiding a tag as the tie-breaking run, even though he had strawberries on his leg and he, uh, that uh, uh, were very painful. But that was the, the winning run, and he paid the price. Then he says the most courageous man in the Bible is Zacchaeus, who climbed on the uh, tree to hear the words of Jesus Christ. And he describes Zacchaeus like he would describe you or me if he met you, you know, in physical terms. You know, he was he was a tax collector. He was not uh, uh, liked in town. He wore fancy suits and boss shirts. But he did believe in this gospel of Jesus Christ. So he climbed a tree. He went out on a limb, which is where the term comes from in the Bible, in the book of Luke. And I want to talk to you about him. And then he has his last, his fatal heart attack, and he says, I can't go on anymore. 
and he collapses and will never regain consciousness. He'll stay in a hospital in Columbia, Missouri, where he was speaking, uh, for almost a month, uh, but never regained consciousness and died on December 9th, uh, 1965. And at the time, it was a front-page item, but his influence in baseball had faded. You know, he had not... Uh, he did not get really credit for the pirate victory. The Continental League had never um, um, uh, got off the ground, although it did prov- provide the Mets, your team, and the, the Colt 45s and the expansion of the American League. But he was very disappointed in that because he didn't like 10-team leagues because he, he was old enough to remember the 10-team National League of the 1890s. So, I mean, that's my fascination for him because he covered so much baseball history in his lifetime, but he also made his history. And so at the time, this was the beginning of the Black Power Movement. It was also Vietnam uh, War rebellions going on all over the country. Uh, and, and, you know, he fell into eclipse, but slowly beginning in the 80s, with the the musical the first on Broadway, uh, in which, by the way, David uh, Greer, David Allen Greer, who's now quite a successful uh, black actor and writer and performer, he played Jackie Robinson. Uh, uh, he becomes a little more known, and then in the 90s, when we start memorializing Jackie's first year of 47, he becomes more known, and then. You know, I think uh, Harrison Ford has maybe done the best job in bringing back to life on film what a what an amazing character and and essentially good Christian branch Wesley Branch Ricky was. Branch, uh, uh, sorry, Lee. Unfortunately, we're going to get cut off. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.